chapter 3. And this one feels like it's on a little bit lighter tone than last week. You know, last week we had to deal with some heavy stuff and talk about marriage. And uh, it was good and uh, helpful. I actually heard a great report last week. Uh, a lady said, you know what? My husband and I haven't had a fight all week. First time in a long time, we did not have a fight all week after just taking some of those truths and applying them to our own lives and marriage. And I, and I just thought, praise God. Thank you, Lord. That's awesome. So, uh, good. Let's, uh, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Jesus, we just thank you that we could wrestle through this passage of scripture that we've been in, uh, in, in Peter. And Lord, we just come to you with open hearts this morning. We, we ask you, Jesus, to speak to our hearts. We ask God that you would encourage us, that you'd transform us. We pray, God, that your, that your word would transform our thinking. We ask, God, that you'd give us kingdom thinking as we look at this life, as we live this life, as we go to work and live in our homes and live in this community. God, we want to be uh, lights in the midst of a dark world for you, Jesus. And so, Jesus, we present our hearts to you this morning. We ask that you transform them. Lord, our, we can't change our hearts. We can change our thinking as we spend time in the word, but we need you to change our hearts. And so, Jesus, we pray that you give us uh, hearts that beat for your kingdom. We ask that by your spirit this morning, you'd speak to us powerfully, powerfully through the word of God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Great, so we're going to pick it up in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, and uh, we're at verse 8, and it says this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, to me, this is kind of weird that Peter, he sounds like Paul here, finally. He's halfway through his letter, and he drops a finally in there. And uh, he's not done. He's just sort of teasing us. Um, Actually, the word finally here has to do with respect to the discussion. The things that he's been talking about in chapters 2 and 3, um, he's kind of wrapping up that portion of the letter. Well, what were we talking about? We've been talking about um, being subject and coming into submission to um, governments, human institutions, and the workplace concerning uh, marriage, and now finally he's going to talk about all human relationships and relationships within the church. There's just some principles that you can apply to all of your relationships. Now, Romans tells us the same thing that Jesus Christ declared as we read in the Gospels, that there is one law that fulfills all the commands and all the instructions of the Old Testament. Just like, you know, in Lord of the Rings, there's one ring to rule them all. Okay, there's, there's one Rule, one law that fulfills all the others, and it's summed up with one word, the word love. Love. Love is the one rule that should guide all of our human relationships. And this rule of love applies, I would say, yeah, all, to all of our relationships, not just our Christian relationships, but those with the world as well. Now, if you look at this instruction in verse 8, he gives us kind of five things. He says, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, those are five instructions that, that you would think would lead to peaceful and harmonious relationships with anyone. The first instruction is this. Have unity of mind. To the church, have unity of mind. Now, unity is not uniformity. It's important that we always remember that when we talk about unity. You know, so often, all of us, I pack this attitude that 
you know, we can have unity of mind as long as you have my mind. As long as you agree with me, we'll have unity. But that is not the idea here. The call is not that you would adopt my point of view or that I would adopt your point of view, but that both of us would adopt the mind of Christ. That we would take Christ's point of view. And that happens as we spend time with Christ in his word. The word makes known to us the mind of the Lord. So he says, have unity of mind. But he also says to practice sympathy. That just is simply expressing this idea that we have compassion for one another. He says, be brotherly, uh, practice brotherly love, which is, you know, and just instead of being hard hearted, be tender hearted towards people. Uh, That's tough sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we all struggle with this, with a hard heart towards people, but he says, be, be tender hearted, tender hearted, cultivate an attitude of a tender and soft heart and that of a humble mind. It's kind of interesting, but if you look at that verse there, you, you might notice that brotherly love is sandwiched in this kind of picture instructions from him with attitudes of the heart and mind that sandwich love. Do you see that in there? If you just look at those five instructions, See, a humble mind is one that holds a right view of itself before God. And that's foundational in relationships. If you're going to be courteous in relationships, you have to practice humility. I mean, all of us have had at some point in time, someone be totally rude to us or, uh, you know, practice some attitude towards us or say some, some rude words. Those kinds of behavior, uh, expose attitudes of a heart and of a mind. They expose pride and a humble mind and a tender heart will be compassionate and it will be courteous to other people. And he says this in verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this is to what you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You know, the natural human response to uh, hostility from one human to another is always retaliation, isn't it? That's the human response. In fact, as Christians, there's kind of three ways we can respond to people. We can call good evil. That's what Satan did, right? In the garden. That's what he does. He calls good evil. That's to act in a satanic kind of matter. Or we can respond to evil with evil, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is a fleshly human response. Or we can respond to evil with good, which is the true divine response. That's how Jesus acted. He was the perfect example of one who responded to evil with good. See, the thing about retaliation in any relationship is that it creates this cycle that never stops. You know, we can look around the world and you see all sorts of different people groups that, that have lived in these generational cycles, even for hundreds of years, where they retaliate against one another and they hurt one another. You hurt me, I hurt you. I hurt you, you hurt me. And it just, the cycle goes on and on. And only love can bring that kind of thing to an end. Jesus said this, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So instead of retaliation or even just being kind back in return, 
The scripture commands us that we are to bless those who treat us with evil intent. That we are to bless those who revile against us. God calls us to actually ask in prayer. Say, God, would you bless that person? Tough thing to do sometimes. God, would you have grace upon that person who's treating me unfairly? Now that attitude is totally backward to how we want to respond in our flesh, isn't it? But that is the behavior of blessing and it's necessary for those who follow Jesus Christ to act that way. The Lord says, if you bless, you will obtain a blessing. I think of Jesus who even while he was hanging on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so the call of Peter is that we love one another and we bless our enemies. I think in a lot of ways, what Peter is saying is that if you want to live, if you want to live the full life, the abundant life that is in Christ, then you have to choose to love life. That's what we're going to see here about Peter. You ever get around a person who in everything, they just seem to, the glass is always half full for them. Always. They're always finding the good in the midst of, they're refreshing to be around. When you're around someone like that, isn't it? It's like totally refreshing. You know, two people can sometimes look at the same situation and one's like the half empty person and one's the half full person. I like being around the half full person who sees an opportunity for something good to happen. Peter's going to illustrate this for us from Psalm 34. I want to read to you. Verse 10 here, it says, from 2 Peter chapter 33, this is a quote from Psalm 34, which Rini read to us earlier, or a portion of it. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The so verse 10 he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You know, the first thing that we see from Psalm 34 is this, that you have to deliberately adopt a point of view that you're going to love life. If you had a desire to love life, you have to take on that point of view. You have to develop and cultivate and nurture an attitude of faith in everything. Faith in Jesus Christ. And so as, Paul, as, as Peter's saying this here, it's not meant to be some weird uh, faith confession practice. This isn't name it and claim it and blab it and grab it. I always like that one. Blab it and grab it. This isn't some prosperity faith confession gospel thing that, that Peter is teaching here. Peter is, is about to take the conversation in this chapter to a discussion on suffering. And so he's talking to us about loving life and adopting this viewpoint of faith, looking to see how God is working in the midst of anything we go through. And so I would say here from Psalm 34, he is laying groundwork in regards to the attitude of the believer. And so as he tells us, and as he encourages us to love life, he's not, he's not saying, you know, adopt some psychological gospel of self-deception. That's not the idea here. Whereby you refuse to face facts. He says, face facts. Face the facts. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, 
take a positive attitude towards life and look to life with an attitude of faith rather than with a heart of fear and an attitude of resignation. Turn with me for a moment to Psalm 34. Let's actually take a peek at this. This is an awesome Psalm. And as you're turning there, let me tell you that Psalm 34 focuses on suffering and the Lord's deliverance for those who are afflicted. But look at verse one, which Rini read to us a little while ago. David says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David is in the face of suffering. Let me remind you what is going on for David as he wrote this Psalm and he wrote these words. Firstly, Saul, the king of Israel, whom David had humbly served for years and years, was trying to kill him. It had gotten so bad that David had fled from amongst the land and people of Israel and he had gone into the land of the Philistines and he had uh, taken refuge in the Philistine city of Gath. And while he was in Gath, some of the people of the city looked around and they said, hey, isn't that David? Isn't that the dude who killed Goliath? Our war hero? Isn't that the guy that they sing that song? Remember that song? Saul has killed thousands and David has killed tens. He's in our city. And David uh, began to fear for his life. He knew that there was a real danger for him. And so the scripture tells us, I think it's in 1 Samuel 15, that he began to change his behavior amongst the, the Philistines in the city of God. In fact, what he did was he pretended to be insane. You ever use that one? It's a good way to get out of things, you know. Maybe you get locked up for a few days, but... He pretended to be insane and he went to the gates of the city and with his hands he, he, and his fingernails, he carved marks into the gates of the city. It says that he babbled on and spoke senseless words and that he let his drool and spit run down his beard. And, and when the king of Gath heard that there was a crazy man in their midst, he opened the gate and he let David out of the city. And so David got out of Gath. That's, that's the picture. And so it's in that context with his life in real true danger. Trapped amongst an enemy people. Uh, trapped in the enemy city that David wrote Psalm 34. And he said this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. See David, I, I, he acted insane. But he made a deliberate choice to love life and to look in faith towards God. You can flip back to First uh, Peter chapter 3. And in Peter's quoting this passage from Psalm 34, he says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. See, if you choose to love life, then David says this. You need to keep your tongue from evil. God has called you to be a conduit of blessing to speak blessing over others so that they might come to know God. See retaliation is not to be the name of our game as believers for us as followers of Jesus Christ. I would say this, the battle always starts with your mouth. So you got to choose not to, 
to speak with deceit and put the praise of the Lord. I will bless the Lord with my mouth at all times. Psalm 141 verse 3 says this, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch, Lord, over the doors of my lips. See, it's so easy to complain when things get tough, isn't it? Oh, God, why me? I think of the Israelites in the desert right away. That's what I think of when I think of this passage. You know, saved from slavery in Egypt by the strong hand of God, passing through the Red Sea, countless miracles in the desert and the hope of entering into the promised land. But in the desert, the scripture tells us that the Israelites despaired of life itself. And in their despairing life, they let loose their lips and complained against God and complained against the leadership of Moses and with an attitude of fear and their disdain for life, it, it caused them that even when the time came to take steps of faith into the promised land, when Joshua and Caleb brought back a good report and stood before the throng and said, the, the, the land is exceedingly good. God has given it to us. Let's go in and take hold of it. But the people, because of their own despairing of life and allowing complaints to come from their lips, in their hearts rebelled against the Lord. And so the scripture tells us here, let him keep his tongue from evil. If you want to love life, then you put the praise of God in your mouth rather than a deceitful tongue. It says in verse 11, let him, whoever or it says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. You know, it's, it's, it's this instruction to us. Be a do-gooder. Be a do-gooder. You know why all of us struggle with certain areas of sin? We all got issues and things of sin that we fight against and deal with. You know why that is? It's because we don't actually hate our sin. We don't hate it. See, it's not enough to just simply avoid sin and say, okay, I think it's wrong. I'll go around this way. It's like trying to avoid someone in Gibson's. You ever notice that doesn't work? <laughs> it does not work in this town. You know, you'll find yourself in a grocery lineup with them. Okay, so avoidance doesn't work with sin either. It doesn't work. You have to hate your sin. You have to shun it. You have to turn your back on it and choose to do good. He says, seek peace and pursue it. Jesus said this, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Seeking and pursuing peace does not need avoidance, but it means in a healthy way, I would say, engage the chaos in your life. Engage the chaos in your relationships. And in doing so, make peace. Be the peacemaker. Make smooth roads. Peaceful relationships is the goal here, he says. Verse 12 says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know, this is awesome. Do you belong to Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Then you know that the Lord has promised his ears are open to you. His eyes are set on you. His righteous people. Yeah, but aren't the ears of the Lord open to everyone? No, they're not. Look at what this passage says. 
the Lord has turned his face against those who do evil. See, if you love Jesus and you've surrendered your life to him, his, the eyes of the Lord are on you and he is attentive to your cries and your pleas and your prayers. But the Lord has set his face against your enemies and against those who do evil to you. You see, that's why we can pray for those who hurt us. This is why we can bless someone even when they act with evil intentions towards us because we know where God's eyes are set on us. We know that he will hear our, our prayers. We belong to God. So if God is for us, who can be against us? What can man do to me? They're going to hurt me, slander me, maybe kill me. Well, like Paul, for every one of us to live is Christ and to die is gain. You belong to Christ. And that means you win. We have our sins forgiven. We have eternal life. We have the hope of heaven. I mean, God forbid if I walked out this door today and got run over by a bus. Look, I know I'll be ushered into the presence of my Savior and into eternity. And so for that reason, knowing that God's eyes are set on us and that he's listening, we can love life. We can adopt an attitude of faith in everything. We can have a heart full of optimism that God can work in any situation, in everything. Love life. Guard your tongue. Turn your back on evil. And David says, and I will bless the Lord at all times. Now, people in this world, you know, I, I would say... The move in the game plan of the world is this. To make life problem free. And what we're going to see from Peter is this. Is that life is not problem free. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that about life? I have problems, man. I got problems. Life has got problems. You know, the entire world longs for the classic American dream, don't they? What we call the American dream. A white picket fence. Like a white picket fence is going to fix everything. You just put up a little white picket fence and life's all good. It's not how it works. You know, it's this thought that, that we can be insulated from problems. That a white picket fence will protect you from difficulty. That a white picket fence will allow you to escape adversity in this world. But Psalm 34 and what Peter is saying to us tells us something very different. It tells us that when life has you on the run... It tells us that when life has you on the rope, when, when life has you stuck in the enemy's city, when all around you things appear to be crumbling down and when you are wondering where the groceries are going to come from, when you are in fear of what's going to happen in some relationship or in your marriage or whatever it might be, when you have a health scare or whatever it possibly could be, that the, with the eye of faith, you can look into the storm and say, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will always be on my mouth. Amen. See, the psalmist also said this, that it's better one day in the Lord's courts. One day in his courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere. You know, what's a good day? I think of my kids, you know, sometimes I pray this lazy prayer sometimes with my kids. Lord, I pray we'd have a good day. What, what is a good day for a believer? What is a good day? 
Well, I would say this, a good day is not when I feel safe and I'm pampered by life. A, a good day is not when I have no problems and I get to indulge myself with lots of ice cream. You know, a, a good day is not when life is free from complications. A good day, a good day is when in the face of life's problems, I choose to glorify and magnify my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. A good day is when I spend time in the place of prayer and I call on his name and he answers me. A good day is when I sense the presence and the nearness of God. A good day is when I taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what David said in Psalm 34. Right in Gath, in the enemy's city, I will bless the Lord at all times. You know, next time you're having a bad day, turn to Psalm 34 and let it remind you to bless the Lord. Because in the face of any storm, any life situation, when God's presence is near, we can face anything as followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. I mean, this is exactly what Peter's saying. Look at it. He says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Exactly. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us and who can be against us, then that means this. As followers of Jesus Christ, we can always in every situation be zealous to do the good thing. We can be passionate and fanatical about doing good stuff because God will work. He will work. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So he says, you know, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I, I hope you get the logic here of what Peter is saying in the midst of this text. Uh, let's be zealous to do good. And when some person decides to take some shots at you, to slander you, to hurt you, you know, the, the natural human reaction is this, to shrink back. The natural human reaction is to retaliate. But it is actually at that time, Peter says, that we should give special attention to the attitude of our hearts. And what should we do? We should sanctify our hearts and we should set them apart unto Christ. Rather than to give in to fear and be troubled, verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, what he's saying is this, is that at the times when we suffer for being righteous. It's right at that time that you need to look with the eye of faith because God is opening a door. He is about to present you with an opportunity. If you will look into that situation with faith, there is going to be an opportunity to share the reason for the hope that is in you. It's right in the time when you are suffering 
that our hearts need to be centered on Jesus Christ and that we should be ready to explain the reason for this faith that we have, this hope, why we're trusting in Jesus Christ. And I would say this, you know, sometimes it's, it sounds like this overwhelming thing. You be ready to defend the faith. Look, you don't need to be a Jedi master in theology, okay? Nor do you need to be trained in some school of apologetics. Those things are good. You need to be, you know, it's good to grow in the knowledge of those things. They're good. But in the moments that Peter is talking about, I would say this. All you need to be able to do is give a simple explanation for your hope. This isn't like some theological, well, let me show you the Bible, pull out your that, whatever. No, it's just that I hope in Christ. And here's why. You know, I know this is going on, but I've set my hope on Jesus Christ. He says, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You know, the book of Acts uh, tells us a number of times when Peter was put in a spot where he had to be ready to give a defense for his faith and for the reason for his hope. And he, and he did so in many beautiful ways in the book of Acts for the religious leaders, before the people who were questioning what was going on on Pentecost. It's Pentecost Sunday, by the way. Um, you know, I was blessed on Wednesday night by the ministry of Esther Lynn and uh, we had a good time here. It was, it was cool. And um, what was really awesome was uh, Luke began to just share. They're just a three-piece and Luke began to just kind of share with us about the love of Christ. They played five, maybe four or five songs. And then I thought the things that he said were just so timely and perfect for the youth that were here. It was a, like he shared for like a half an hour and it was awesome. And when the night was all over and we were kind of cleaning up and everybody had left, a few of us were on the platform and Luke, the lead singer, says to one of the other guys in the band, he says, yeah, I... I told your wife to be ready to share, and I hope you were ready to share too. And he's like, yeah, I, would to I was totally ready. I thought you were going to ask me to share. And I, I, I'm listening in, so I jumped in on the conversation. I'm like, whoa, 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 H hang on, guys. I'm just trying to get a picture of what's going on here. Are you telling me that all of you came on the platform prepared to share? And he said, yeah, that's what we do. I said, really? So, so just, you know, as the worship's happening, and as you sense the Spirit of God leading, you'll point to one of the band members and get them to, do the devotional for that night? He said, yeah, that's exactly what we do. And I, I just thought that was so cool. See, you can only do that, I would say, when you're spending time with Jesus Christ. You know, as a group, obviously they're in the word and they are spending time with Christ. And Peter gives that same example in the book of Acts. Don't. You know, whatever the instruction was to him, if it was to stop speaking in the name of Jesus or wh whatever situation we see Peter in in the book of Acts, he jumped in and he was ready to, to share. And the Spirit led him and guided him. And that only happens as you spend time with Christ. Peter mentions briefly here the conscience. Our conscience, the conscience is kind of that... Um, internal judge that enables me to know whether my actions are, are meet my personal approval or disapproval. And a conscience can be in all sorts of conditions, the scripture tells us. A conscience can be seared. A conscience can be defiled. A conscience can be poisoned. 
It can even be evil. A conscience, the scripture says, can be good. It can, we can have a clean conscience. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that by the constant use of the word of God, by spending time in God's word, that we actually train our conscience to distinguish between right and wrong and good and evil. It's something that can be trained. And when I have a good conscience, then I'm in a place where I'm ready to give a defense for the reason that I have hope in Christ. You know, when my conscience is condemning me, when I've been struggling with some area of sin and it's, it's, it's just saying you need to get right with God, I, I'm never in the headspace to share when that is going on. See, a good conscience puts us in the spot where we can share the reason for the hope that we have. And when we have a good spot, conscience, we can respond with courage and dependency upon the Spirit, knowing that He will guide us, guide our words. But if my conscience is in some place of disrepair, then courage leaves, peace leaves, fear comes in, and you, you want to flee when someone challenges you. And so in being prepared to give a reason for the hope that I have, there are some spiritual disciplines that each one of us needs to practice. I need to be loving in my heart and in my mind towards people. I need to cultivate the right attitude towards going through tough stuff, towards suffering, towards problems and conflict. My heart needs to be centered on Christ I need to have made a decision to love life and to live by faith with a good conscience. And when I put away deceit and put the praise of the Lord in my mouth, what comes out of your mouth, wherever it is, in your home, in your workplace, in your, it'll be powerful. God will use it when you put yourself in that spot. Again, I think of Peter. The book of Acts the teachers of the law looked at him and it says they saw that he was an unschooled man, but they took note he had been with Jesus because his message was powerful. Or I think of Philip. I think it's Philip about whom the scripture says that no one could stand up against the words that he spoke. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, you know, none of us wants to suffer. I don't want to suffer. We're talking about inviting suffering into your life. But if we are going to suffer, I'd rather be in the center of God's will in the face of my suffering. I'd rather be suffering for doing good than suffering for being involved in evil. You know, uh, the world's got this weird attitude against us Christians, don't they? So, man, we, you, you, I, I think sometimes we get looked at as though we create problems. We're problem creators, you know. Whatever the culture issue is that's going on. You know, if you think about homosexuality or some of these different discussions, you Christians, you know. But you know what? Christians actually do not create problems. For the most part. That's a general rule. Once in a while, we do. But you know what Christians actually typically do? They reveal problems that already exist. It's like switching on a light in a dark room. 
As long as the light is out, no one knows that there's issues and there's problems. You switch on the light and all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's something apparent here to everyone. And Christians, more often than not, are like a light that comes into a dark room. You know, put a Christian in a work environment, put a Christian in a classroom, put a Christian in a men's beer league hockey team dressing room. And in a short time, something will happen because that's what happens when light enters darkness. Maybe the prob- maybe a problem will be revealed. And I would say this, take heart because the problem was already there. Your presence just exposed it, whatever you maybe are going through. Your presence simply put a spotlight on it. And so sometimes we suffer for doing good just by showing up. We get in trouble. Has that ever happened to you? You show up and you get in trouble. It could be in a relationship, you know, a workplace, like I said. It could be, you know, with a spouse. It could be in friendships, whatever it is. But I take, I take heart in these things in the face of tough stuff. To say, yes, okay, God, you're doing something. Just let me be prepared to speak into it. And I really take heart in this next verse where Peter talks about Christ. But he also makes an application for us that when we suffer prop, that when we suffer and properly respond to suffering, that God uses it to draw people to himself. You know, um, some of you, I know, know Jonathan Willoughby. Uh, Jonathan was here on the Sunshine Coast. He's uh, a good friend. Our siblings are actually married. So, uh, and CLA supports the work that he does and as does Pender Harbor Community Church. And so he always does a run through the Sunshine Coast. And so the other night we were having a, a dinner together. And if you saw the email, you know what happened if you, if you didn't. But anyways, we, we had dinner. And then later that night, Jonathan couldn't sleep. And at seven o'clock in the morning, he took himself to the hospital because he's like, I ate something funny. Something is bothering me. There's, I don't know what to do. And so uh, they did a, a CT scan or whatever, and they saw that there was a piece of wire in his stomach. They figured it was a bristle off the barbecue brush, had made its way onto his burger, and he swallowed it three centimeters long. And so all night long in a lot of pain, and so they began to treat him. So um, I loaded up with uh, Pastor Jazz from CLA. Two of us went out to visit him because he's a good friend of both of us. And um, we spent in that little hospital room and we prayed. God, he's suffering. But obviously you have something you're trying to do. We, we pray that thing will disappear. We pray you'll take care of it. We pray you'll guide the hands of the doctors. And in the face of what's going on, God, there's a work of redemption that you're looking to work in this hospital. Maybe it's just staff watching us pray right now. God, do the work. May the hope that this man has be apparent to everyone around him. See, when we suffer and properly respond, God uses it to draw people to himself. Praise God, they did an endoscopy and they went in there and they were able to retrieve that piece of metal just before it went down A little further on, it was sitting in the bottom of his stomach. Poor guy. Welcome to Gibson's. Jesus is the greatest example and ultimate example of truth. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous. We're going to wrap up in a few minutes. 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Look, Jesus is an example that shows us that God works powerfully when his people suffer for doing good. You know, Jesus' own personal suffering brought me to God. Jesus' personal suffering brought you to God. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He suffered once for sins. Which means there is no longer any need for a continual sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the world. Jesus offered himself once for all for the sins of mankind. And in doing so, Jesus was righteous. There was no unrighteousness in him. He suffered although he had done good. He suffered though he had done nothing wrong. And the reason and the purpose for all of that was so that he would bring us to God. So that he would pay the penalty for our sin and our transgression. It was also that he could restore a broken relationship that we had with our father who is in heaven because of sin. And Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice. He died. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. And Jesus tells us, if we're going to follow him, we need to pick up our cross And I would say this, you need to know and settle this truth in your heart. Wherever you're at this morning, whatever your spiritual condition is, you need to settle this truth that when you look to Jesus, to look to him, to put your hope in him, to turn from your sin and to invite him into your heart to be the Lord of your life is is absolutely necessary. In fact, the scripture defines us when we're apart from Christ as being dead, as being blind, as being lost. And to look to Christ is to live. See, Peter's calling us again to love life. But looking to Jesus is the absolute prerequisite. You, You can't actually know what life is until you know Jesus Christ. There is no life apart from him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 10, 10, he said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. John 3, 16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. See, the one work of Jesus Christ On the cross is enough. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. And he will bring you to God if you will come to him. And you know true life. And God wants to use us to help bring others to God. And sometimes it's when we're in the face of suffering. Verse 19 is interesting. Check it out. It says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So Peter references this Old Testament story of Noah about um, the wickedness of the earth and how God saved eight Noah and eight people in the ark in the midst of the flood. Now apparently... Something happened on the cross that was not observed or between the cross and Jesus death and his resurrection uh, before he rose from the dead. 
Jesus went into Hades and he preached to the spirits that are in prison. Now that's, there's, there's lots of, this is one of these really tough verses in the New Testament, okay? If we pulled this, there'd be 80 different opinions on these verses. This verse seems to point to the fact that these are not human spirits, but demonic spirits. Revelation tells us that there is a pit full of the most foul and evil spirits where they are contained. And there is going to be a time, if you remember, back in our study from Revelation about a year ago, when God will open that abyss and he will let those foul spirits out and they will physically harm the inhabitants of the earth. Painful sores. We know that in the days of Noah, that evil on the earth was probably unparalleled. Uh, both human and demonic evil. This, this Genesis tells us about demons having relationships with, with human beings and all sorts of craziness. And Noah was a great man of faith in the midst of uh, those days. He was a preacher of righteousness. It took him 120 years to build the ark. And while he proclaimed uh, God in the face of his culture and built that ark. There were only eight people who followed his righteous teachings. Now, I don't think when you, when we reference this story, I don't think that Jesus went into Hades and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, the good news of the cross so that they had an opportunity to receive salvation. But I think he went in there and he proclaimed the defeat and the judgment of sin and the numbered days of those spirits. That on the cross, he finished the work of God against evil. This is, I believe, a proclamation and a declaration of Jesus' triumph over evil. Now, some people believe that this passage points to the fact that people can be ministered to and hear the message of the gospel and respond to it even after they die. And I believe that's inconsistent with the Bible. And that it's inconsistent with the nature and the character of God that we see in the Bible. And what it teaches. See, if you have breath in your lungs and you hear the saving message of Jesus Christ and you do not know him, I urge you to turn from your sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. I mean, if I could plead with you, Jesus Christ loves you and he does not want to be separated from you for another moment. Turn from your sin. And turn in faith to Jesus Christ because the cross provides the forgiveness that all of us need. Verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to the story of Noah and the ark on the waters. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. See, the cross provides forgiveness. Jesus has given notice to the demon spirits. And if your own conscience is condemning you, you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. And if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, I need to ask you this. Have you been baptized? 
Have you been baptized? You know, the waters of the flood washed away the sin and the wickedness of the world. And, and through that ark, uh, those people that were in it were carried to a new world where there was a fresh start and where they arrived safely. And Christ is like the ark for us. Jesus has carried you to safety. And just like the floodwaters washed away the problem of sin and removed and, and drowned the world. So in baptism, the world's pull is kind of washed away. Its power is reduced as you identify yourself with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. The water provided in for Noah a passage from the old life to the new life. And Jesus commands us in the scripture to be baptized. And part of having a good conscience before God is to follow the command of Jesus Christ and to be baptized. And you know, I, I would uh, encourage you, if, you're not, if you've invited Jesus Christ into your heart and life, but you've never been baptized, you need to do so. You know, come and talk to me. We'll plan one soon and we'll get you in the waters. And it's this awesome time where you just make a public declaration of your uh, intention to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, where you identify yourself with his death and his burial and his resurrection. It's part of having a good conscience, Peter says. It's kind of interesting. It says, Jesus Christ has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subject to him. See, Jesus suffered for doing good, but you know what God did for him? God welcomed him into heaven. Jesus ascended into heaven and everything has been made subject to him as God has blessed him. Peter's point is true. Peter's point for us is true. That when we suffer for doing good, God's promise is this, that we will inherit a blessing. And so I encourage you, in the face of whatever suffering you might be going through, adopt some of these attitudes that Peter is talking about, and God will bless you. Amen?